Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The women of the WNBA have paved the way for demanding positive social change. From denouncing the murder of Philando Castile to addressing issues like pay equity, maternal health, and civil rights. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the show, we talk to WNBA player Asia Wilson about why sports and activism are intricately linked. But first, Amira Rose Davis. She's assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. She co-hosts the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, Can't Eat a Medal, Black Women Athletes Under Jim Crow. Professor Davis, welcome to Disrupted. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's get right into it. I I want to begin our conversation by addressing the role of activism in sports. There seems to be this divide from some people saying, we don't want our sports to be political at all. And then others demanding that athletes use their platform to actually engage. So talk to us about this tension. Can sports really be separate from politics? Yeah, absolutely not. Sports are inherently political. And I would really say that it's a false dichotomy. I think the people who say, oh, keep politics out of sports, we've seen have no problem turning around and having politics in sports when it's their politics. And we've seen this hypocrisy on full display over and over and over again. The same people who say, keep politics out of sports, don't kneel for an anthem, don't put your fist up during the national anthem. Um, Never stop to question that the anthem in a space of sports is already political. Never question the Department of Defense dollars that, you know, necessitated public displays of patriotism and Americana rah-rah at football games. And so the sports and politics are always kind of entwined and wrapped together. I think that, you know, uh, certainly the tension comes in with uh, people using that platform, using that space and refusing to be just entertainers. Um, And the fans who, uh, fans and ownerships and models and all the people who just want to not be disturbed by um, uncomfortable truths. And I think that that's really where the tension is. And and honestly, um, I think it, it is part and parcel of just trying to promote a false discourse because the players, athletes have spent so long saying uh, it's, 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 not about this or this is what we're protesting for or whatever. And it doesn't really matter, right? Like they can do op-ed after op-ed, they can do town hall meeting after town hall meeting, um, but the critics of them are still going to critique. And so I think that, um, you know, moving away from trying to convince people that sports are political and instead thinking through the ways to have effective athletic activism is, is really the direction the conversation needs to go in. You know, some people say that sports is an escape or a respite from the kinds of tensions and challenges that they experience in their everyday lives. And yet you have this book about Black women athletes titled Can't Eat a Medal, 
the lives and labors of Black women athletes in the age of Jim Crow. First of all, the title is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But take us through that story, that arc of Black women in sport, and in some ways how they haven't had the luxury of choosing not to be engaged or not to understand those political dynamics that, as we see in broader society, may not provide a space for Black women to make that choice. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the long history of Black women's athletics, you get to see all of the complexity, both the possibilities and the politics of sports. You see um, sports being a a pathway to a certain type of freedom and upward mobility, especially for rural Black girls in in the Jim Crow South, um, who are able to use it to get the first ever athletic scholarships for women in the country and go to HBCUs. And, you know, I think of Willie White from from um, Money, Mississippi, who was the same age as Emmett Till when he was killed in her hometown. And that same year, that fall, she got a track scholarship. And her grandfather said, listen, you have two choices. You can stay here, get pregnant, pick cotton all your life, or you can go run. You can go run somewhere and run out of this town. And so I think that in some ways, it has been an area for Black girls and Black women to find a piece of themselves or find certain pathways. But they have had to claw for every step that they've taken on that road. They've had to, especially as we move into the modern era, they've had to demand and insist on resources and equity in sports and, and um, you know, equal pay and just the right to exist as professional athletes, as college athletes and youth sports. Up and down the board, um, it has been a grind for mere sporting existence. And then at the same time, one of the things and where the title of, of my book comes from is that these these Black women are always like, well, you can use me symbolically, right, for all of this escapism or goodwill or whatever, but that doesn't really translate into my actual freedom or material benefits. And so Jesse Owens said the line, I can't eat a metal woman, Rudolph echoed it, right? Um, it's like, okay, this is not going to actually feed me. It's not going to give me a job. It's not going to keep me safe po- from police brutality. Like that, it, there's limits to this. Althea Gibson echoed the same sentiment when she's like, listen, they call me the queen of the court, but you can't eat a crown. And so part of the story that I wanted to document and tell was these possibilities and the politics of their athletic participation, the use of their symbolic representation, and the material reality. And it might not be a feel-good tale. It's not going to be the tales that you hear in children's books, which are a particular vessel for telling stories of of Black people in sports, but particularly Black women. There's a a disproportionate number of children's books about Black women uh, athletes that, you know, in 20 pages allows them to overcome sexism and racism and and do this kind of fairy tale dream rhetoric story um, that never really considers or takes up uh, their lives after that moment, which sees them existing as Black women in America, where they have to demand space, they have to combat erasure, they have to combat stereotypes, and they have to, you know, grind for everything that they don't get and, and really deserve. So let's talk about that grind and how difficult that grind is for Black women as athletes, because the mention of the material aspect of that. I remember when Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams were playing against each other and it almost felt like there was no win because they were pitted against each other, not as athletes, but as black women. 
And to see the tears for Naomi of this is someone that I grew up wanting to emulate. And can we be in this moment without people attaching the stereotypes about, you know, whether Serena was too aggressive? Is she too angry? Does she intimidate people? And still being able to rise to the top of their sport. And yet what we also know from your work and from others is that even Black women who excel to the heights of their sports still don't make as much money as their male counterparts. So talk to us through that of how they are demanding, and it's why I think the title is is so important, I Can't Eat a Medal, and how we still impose these sorts of distinctions when it comes to what we think people's talent is worth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that moment with Naomi and Serena at the U.S. Open Finals two years ago now, um, is really instructive, one year ago, pandemic time is fuzzy, um, is really instructive because in that moment, you saw familiar tropes, you know, being wielded against Serena, certainly about Black women's rage and aggression. Um, You saw a very racist cartoon, right, from um, out of Australia that uh, accentuated her lips and and her her face and her figure. But the other thing that that did on the side of Naomi is it lightened her. It whitened her. Her her hair became very blonde and very straight, as almost to render her victim. Right? They they essentially drew white tears onto a non-white body. And part and parcel of that is an effort to erase the legacy of Serena, of Venus, of their dad, of Richard Williams at that. Because when you're looking at people like Coco Goff, or you're looking at, you know, people like Naomi Osaka, whose whose parents literally were like watching the Williams sisters and it's like, oh, let me put my let me put my girl in tennis. Right. And you'll see just um, you know, a few months ago they there was a running commentary um, during during uh, the US Open where it was like, look at the legacy of all of these players and then did not include Serena in this, despite the fact that we can see how her and Venus have changed the game on and off the court. Venus's fight for equity and equal pay at Wimbledon has created the structure within tennis that does allow for women to make as much as their male counterparts. And that was that was Venus at the head of that movement. Um, and so I think that to the point about even in individual sports, women, black women are disadvantaged is absolutely right. We know that there's a, you know, there's levels to this and the way that um, black women in sports have been able to make the most money is in individual sports, Olympic sports um, and, and individual sports like golf and tennis. And yet we know that for years, Serena made a lot less than her counterparts in in sponsorship and endorsement deals, which is where a lot of the money comes in because we don't have the infrastructure for women's sports. We don't have those resource allocations. Or I just told you Venus was fighting for equal pay. Um, And so those sponsorships mean a lot, but those sponsorships are grounded in racist market logics, right? That try to constrain what and how Black women can be endorsed and sponsored. And I think about this, especially in terms of the Olympic sports, um, where it might be easier to fund a Gabby Douglas briefly or a Simone Biles, but Clarissa Shields, two-time gold medalist in, in, in boxing, found it really difficult to get sponsored. And so what we haven't seen um, until recently is the ability for women within collective sports, within team sports, um, to make their own uh, 
push for for monetization in that way, except that we now see the needle move a little bit like with the WNBA, which is still way under where it needs to be. But honestly, as a testament to their union, and this is one of the differences, right? The unionization, the union, having a strong players association, having a strong union in sports is really underexplored, but has allowed the WNBA to make many of the moves that they've made, including a brand new collective bargaining agreement that is certainly not, you know, everything that they need, but it is really one of the most progressive CBAs that is allowing them to get more earning opportunities. And we've seen, um, at least this summer, uh, increased investment from brands into the league. And we're really on kind of unprecedented territory in that regard. That was Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. We continue our conversation after the break. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we hear from WNBA star Asia Wilson on what it means to use her platform for social change. But now we're back with Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. She's also co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Ask Professor Davis about all the corporate sponsorship that's flooded in and how they've moved from punishing athletes for speaking out to now encouraging it. But what's actually being done to invest in change and what's different about the influence of players in this moment? Here's Amira Rose Davis. I think that what we have seen the past few months, um, the summer of 2020, the intersection of COVID, of the movement for Black Lives, of, um, you know, pandemic, pandemic sports returning, has really created uh, a new environment for which athletic athletic activism can thrive. And so uh, if we think about the history of athletic activism, you know, Dr. Harry Edwards, talks about it in waves. And um, this is what he considers the fourth wave. I see it as, you know, not, I, I, I agree with that, but I think that perhaps the other way to think about it is athletes like many of us consider themselves part of the Trayvon generation, right? There's um, the Miami Heat donned hoodies after Trayvon's murder. And it really was where I go back to, to look at what the growth has been over the years, but even considering that, we can look at 2016, right? And we can look at the work that the WNBA was doing months before Colin Kaepernick took a knee, where they were wearing protest shirts, um, they were taking over press conferences and refusing to answer questions unless it had to do with police brutality. These actions were really below the radar. And in fact, the league tried to find them. They tried to find them $500 for every protest shirt they wore. And the players did not back down. The players were refusing to do this. I just had a panel on Black women's athletic activism with uh, that included Tina Charles, WNBA legend. And she was very vocal four years ago to say, hey, you have all this energy for breast cancer awareness. You have all this energy for pride, which we support and, and believe we have all this energy for, you know, these programs, but not for police brutality, not to talk about systemic racism. And the players really pushed the W. And you see that evolving. The next season, the WNBA 
announced the Take a Seat, Take a Stand initiative where proceeds for every ticket sale went to one of their five partner organizations. Those partner organizations were not, you know, Planned Parenthood was one of them, right? They weren't afraid of controversy, but none of them specifically addressed um, the needs of Black women or their concerns around police brutality or, you know, anything like that. And so you could see that it was really this dance of like, how much can we give without jumping all in. And I think on the other side, again, four years ago is when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. And at that point, that was really disruptive in terms of the way it spread, but also the reaction to it. Now you fast forward, as you mentioned, these brands are saying Black Lives Matter. One of the things that happened is sporting institutions also jumped on that bandwagon. So it creates another safety net for athletes who might've been precarious or who were hesitant to speak out, who who weren't as in a position to do as much. But that that symbolic gesture of, of kneeling has even been a bit watered down because you have owners kneeling, right? You have, you know, you have it appropriated in, in this sense. And I think that that's really um, important to watch the evolution of the W on this because the players have forced the league into action and they have. On the other side of things, what you see is this kind of gap between performative, gest- uh, performative gestures where the conversation about why do we even need pandemic sports? Like, what, you know, what are we doing here? The leagues were like, what do we need to do to still get them into the bubble or into the wobble or back to the field, right? So saying, hey, wear vote on your shirt or paint your courts that say Black Lives Matter or, or do this or do that um, was a gesture. What the WNBA did and why, you know, I, I believe that they have laid such a blueprint for this is they collectively decided to dedicate the season to say her name and specifically to Breonna Taylor. And it came with action. They saw Black women who were victims of state-sanctioned violence and police brutality as erased from the dominant narrative about this moment. They saw these women as them because as Black women, they understood very keenly what it was like um, to be erased. And they dedicated their season to uplifting these narratives, but they did the work. They met with Kimberly Crenshaw and tried to dig through what intersectionality really was, right? They had Zoom calls with Sandra Bland's sister and got their stories and captured their humanity and their personhood from their families, from those who knew them before they were a trending topic or a meme, right? And then they disrupted play. So they were like, cool, that's cute. Paint the court. That's, that's cute. But we're actually going to stop playing. And we we're going to tell you right here, right now, about the life of Atiana Jefferson. We're going to tell you about Rakia Boyd. We're going to tell you about Corinne Gaines. We're going to lift up these stories. We're going to donate to these foundations. We're going to make sure they're front and center. And we're going to not relent on that action. And then moreover, you saw as they moved into, you know, electoral politics, um, one of their, uh, one, Kelly Loeffler, uh, co-owner of The Dream, tried to publicly use them as, you know, political props um, and prove that she could discipline this like Black queer league that she was involved in. Instead of going back and forth with her, which they saw was to her benefit, she was rising in the polls every time she did that. They were like, let's vet her opponents. Let's find who does Um, uh, amplify our values and endorse them. And they took this like, you know, vote a step further because they're like voting is actually not harm mitigation if you're voting for somebody that's harmful. 
And so they wore not shirts that just said vote, but specifically vote Warnick, right? They have brought a lot of publicity to his campaign. Um, and then you see the Seattle storm um, fully endorsing a presidential candidate as, as uh, you know, as an entity. And I think that these things are really unprecedented when we think about decisive action and how, how it's done. And I think that we can see the gaps in the other areas when um, the NBA, after the, you know, very brief wildcat strike, um, was like, okay, out of this, we're going to have a social justice council, which the W already had. Or they say, okay, we're going to use these places as uh, voting centers, these arenas. A lot of those fell through. Um, or they announced new partnerships, like the Miami Heat announced the partnership with Miami-Dade County PD to invest in a de-escalation training, which is just giving more money to a police department that already has a budget of over $800,000. And I think that those things are not quite um, in line with what the asks of the players were um, in the way that the W, because of their really strong union and their collective action, have been able to push the league beyond these performative gestures and insist that there is a next step. So we've just come through an incredibly contentious election. We are in the middle of ongoing questions about how long this pandemic will last, what different aspects of our lives will look like as we go through it. And as you said, this question about pandemic sports and what comes next. But what you've just done is highlighted the sense of power and agency of these women athletes who said, you don't get to define me. I define not just myself, but really collectively this platform. Are you hopeful that this awakening of others that has been centered on the long labor and commitment of Black women athletes will be this catalyst for change? Am I hopeful? You know, I am, I find hope in their actions, right? I find hope in in grassroots activism. I find hope on in people in the streets. I find, I find hope in the people, right? Um, I'm under no disillusion that, these structures that we're, you know, fighting against and that they're fighting against or whatever are just going to yield, right? Like I see many of these gains when we see leagues say when the NFL is like, great, we're going to paint uh, end racism in the end zone. Like, okay, that solved it. Thanks. Um, but when that happens, I really see it as this sense of like, how much can we give with that while we're protecting all of the rest of the assets and equity and resources and, and stuff like that. So I, I tend to look at a lot of that cynically, but what gives me hope are, are the ones who are unrelenting. And um, the WNBA, you know, I wrote about this in a piece for Bitch Media about refusal um, coming off the heels of the Wildcat strike when people returned to play and there was a conversation it's like, okay, well, did that mean anything then? And part of what I wanted to highlight is that the WNBA's playing is also a sense of refusal in that they refuse to disappear. They refuse to go away. They refuse to shut up. They refuse to cede any ground um, that they stand on. And I think that to me, there is a certain hope within their audacity. Um, 
there's <laughs> that you just realized I inverted the audacity of hope. Um, but but the, it's true, right? When you see somebody say, hey, I'm not here to just be inspiration porn for like, you know, young girls that you are trying to be like, this is women and whatever. When you have people like Courtney Williams saying, no, like this is me. I am a black woman, right? When you have Laisha Clarendon saying, I'm non-binary. When you have people, a woman in the WNDA saying like, this is who we are unapologetically and we are going to do our job. We're going to demand equity in it. We are going to reach out because we know that we don't have all the answers. So we're going to reach out to activists. We're going to reach out to politicians. We're going to, you know, reach out and run our own foundations. We're going to have players who say, I'm not going to play. I think it's a distraction. I'm going to go work on um, criminal justice reform. I'm going to go work on um, social justice in in the cities um, and gun violence prevention. I'm going to do that. And you have the collective of the league saying, we got you. We see that as an extension of us and not um, not this kind of feeling like, oh, you're distracting, you're not committed to the game. And I think that they're making space for that model of collective athletic activism. And it's really in the collective because individuals have, you know, we see that individuals can be certainly disruptive, but we also see the precarity of that disruption. We see that with Colin, we've seen that with Eric Reed, we've seen that with unknown people who've gotten cut that we even lose sight of. But the, the power of the collective, I think, was what was on display this summer. Um, and I think that that's the energy going forward. And I think that that is the energy that gives me um, anything approximate to hope. Uh, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that their visibility, their increased visibility um, contributes to that. In a time where could to take it full circle and go back to your first question, critics who look at like the low numbers of the NBA and say, oh, go woke, you go broke, and this is what happens. Well, first of all, obviously lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's viewership is down, um, except for the WNBA, whose finals viewing went up 15%, the National Women's Soccer League that went up 400%. You know, because all of a sudden you can access and see their games and not even all of them. They weren't even on like good channels and they still had that type of growth. And so that is also something to behold is that the WNBA and the black women, especially with within the WNBA and the white allies in the league. Have not only said this is who we are and we are unapologetic about who we are and we're pushing forward with that and had and made their league get behind them. So that from four years to now, you have actually league imperatives uh, aligned with this. But they told sponsors the same thing. Like, we're not gonna shrink it and pink it. We're not gonna all have long ponytails. We're not gonna do this. And sponsors have now fallen in line and they have made um, brands come to them on their terms and increase their platform. And that is certainly a sight to behold. And I didn't think that would happen. So if that can happen, um, then I do have a lot of hope with them leading the way. Amir Rose Davis is Assistant Professor of History and African-American Studies at Penn State University. She co-hosts the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and is author of the forthcoming book, Can't Eat a Medal. The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Amira, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank y'all for having me. 
Coming up, WNBA star Asia Wilson talks about using her platform for justice. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the role of activism in sports. Asia Wilson was recently named the WNBA's most valuable player. She plays for the Las Vegas Aces and is a member of the league's Social Justice Council. She hasn't been shy about using her platform to demand change. Asia Wilson, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you have distinguished yourself as a formidable athlete since your time at South Carolina, but you were also a number one draft pick in 2018, and now, just two years later, you're now the league's MVP. But all this work that you do on the court is matched by the work that you're doing off the court and through the league with social justice. Tell us about the motivation. What makes you want to tackle issues of social justice? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my number one is just has to be that, and I always say this, when you take away the jersey, when you take away the accolades and everything that may make Asia Wilson, you have a Black woman. Uh, that's what the first thing people see if they do not know me, if I'm not in uniform, if I'm not putting a ball into a hoop. And so it's it's the life that I live. And, and when I hear these stories and when I'm watching the news and, and on Twitter or on social and I see it, I just honestly think that it could be my mom, it could be my dad, it could be my boyfriend, my brother, and it could also be me. So that was something that really connected with me so quickly. And I mean, at a young age, of course, you see it. It's not like all of a sudden 2020 is police brutality. No, this has been something that we've been living on for years. And it's just as I got older, I knew that I wanted to make a difference. And when I'm in a, and I'm so grateful to be in a league that is so open to us doing our own thing and standing up for what we believe in and how, how unified we really are as a league. And, and when you have a league like that, you just, it gives you that comfort that you can push and use your platform in a, in a, in a better way than what you're using is just playing on ESPN, but letting things be known. And that's something that's key. That's the reason why I wanted to be on the social justice council is just to help you know, use our platform in a positive way and to bring light to things that people brush underneath the rug or just turn the, turn the other cheek to. One of the things about this year that has been so important is, as you mentioned, this isn't new. These challenges, these issues, the deep-seated inequality did not happen just because of 2020. But yes. for some people, they're suddenly waking up to that reality that, as you mentioned, has been the lived experience. Was it something about growing up in South Carolina that uh, made you aware of these issues in a different way that you can now carry with you as a player in the league? Or was it just sort of an overall awareness of struggle in the United States? Uh, I, I think I think it's a mixture of both. I, I have to credit my parents. Uh, they went out on a, a, on a limb, I guess you could say, and they sent me to private school where it was only maybe 10%. Uh, black and, and if that it's maybe like three uh, percent female black woman and black girls and so they really kind of then and I went to my private school for first through 12th grade like I, I loved it and I'm not going to take away from it it really helped mold me into the person I am today but I think doing that opened up my eyes to a lot of different things that I probably wouldn't have never noticed growing up like I had the whole 
no, I guess you, I had friends that were white and I maybe couldn't go over to their house because I was black. I experienced that. Like we all probably have. And I think it opened opened my eyes at a young age, which then allowed me to open myself up to just being more aware. I I think growing up and when my name started to get a little weight to it uh, in South Carolina and everyone just knew this basketball player, my parents would always say, Asia, always be aware of your surroundings, always, you know, look after you're, you're the people that are coming up uh, around you because you just don't know. And I didn't really think of anything and didn't think of much. I'm like, okay, they're just being parents. But then as I got older, I was like, they weren't, they wasn't just saying that for the good of their health. They were saying that because they knew that people didn't look, they, some people saw me as a threat. Some people just did not like me because of this color of my skin and growing up in South Carolina where it is, you see Confederate flags very often. You see that deep rooted, that deep seated, like you said, racism. It was hard, but, you know, I, I, I hate to say that I just grew up along with it and I just went with the flow. But, you know, I just became more aware of what's what the real world is. Uh, and being an athlete, you get caught up in your own little bubble. You're in this world. It's kind of like you're untouchable because people see you as something. But then you kind of lose sight of the real world and, and being aware of it. And the sooner you are aware of it, you see the real world and how nasty and cruel it really is. Let's talk about that bubble, because it would be easy in this year where there's so much uncertainty, where women athletes already are paid less than their male counterparts. It would be easy to stay in that bubble and just stick to basketball or uh, stick to honing your talent. But you and other members of the league said that's not enough. And you're now part of this social justice council of using the platforms that you have to really push for change. Talk to us about why it's important for that council to exist and what you hope to accomplish. Yeah, um, I mean, it's funny that you you say the council. The council was literally like, Alasia cleared and texted me and I was like, yes, I'm, I'm in for it because I knew I wanted to be a part of history. I knew that when I'm in a league that is predominantly black, uh, black women. I always say that we're a double minority because it's like, okay, we're a woman, but then at that, we're the black woman. And so I just really wanted to help the younger generation out. I wanted to use my platform in a way that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in no matter what. And uh, I remember my teammate always saying, you know, we know change isn't going to happen overnight, but if we just plant seeds, that is making a difference. That is bringing change. I'm so sorry about my puppy, but that is, that is, that is bringing a change to, you know, what we want. And I think that kind of helped us in the bubble where we were unified. It was the whole league unified together in, in unity, standing up for what we believe in and, and for a great cause at that. So um, it's, it wasn't easy. And like you said, we always get the short end of the stick, but I think it goes to show how elite and how just boss women we truly are uh, deep, deep down inside. Like, yes, we can run up and down a court and put a ball in a hoop, but at the same time, we're business women. We have our foundations. We stand up for what we believe in. We use our platforms for the good of our own people and our community. And we're moms on top of that. We have some women that are in our league that are our moms. So I think that just goes to show how much we really care and how much we want to bring a difference and a change within this world. And when you have that sit in front of you, you really can't, you can't go look past it. Part of planting those seeds and and seeing them come into growth is also nourishing that soil. And so you and the council have done that by looking to the wise council of women who have charted this path. People like Professor Kimberly Crenshaw or Alicia Garza and Raquel Wilson. 
why then in this moment where people are talking about race, have you also said it's important to look at the fullness of women's experiences overall, the many ways that Black women, of trans women, of other women's women, how they suffer in this context, you've used that platform to bring women together. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think it just goes back to how I said that we just look at it as it could be us. Uh, Like no one is safe in this matter and we just have to bring light to it because, you know, not trying to diminish anything, but when George Floyd died and when he got murdered, Breonna Taylor did just a few weeks after. And it's like, you you never really heard her truth. Like you never really heard her story because, you know, everyone's focused on George Floyd. I mean, I get it. That that's That's our thing, but it's just like, the black woman always gets the short end of the stick. And we just wanted to amplify their voices and be a voice for the voiceless of the black woman because we're always the one that gets drowned out. And if we do, if we are using our voices, now we're the angry black woman. So we're always getting hit with the stereotype. And I think what better way to stand up and, and, and preach and be there and, and to showcase these women than black women as a whole. And as a league, and when we have allyship within our league, it helps us even more. And so I think that is key as to why we wore the Breonna Taylor on the back of our jerseys. While we had uh, intro, before our intros, we always had facts or people like Professor Crenshaw, sorry, come in and, and speak. So because her voice needs to be heard. And I think that is key as to what we do. And I don't see a, a better league that could do it the way that we can do it because we have women in there that could experience, and I hate to say it, but it's true. But it's it's the life that we live. You know, the WNBA since its inception has always been about pushing against those negative stereotypes or those limiting stereotypes. And one of the things that you've recently done, Asia, is to team up with other athletes for this Instagram campaign called Hashtag See Me. And you've talked about bringing awareness to the issues facing Black communities overall, but particularly Black girls. Why do you think it's so important to speak to Black girls and to affirm them in a way that they feel seen as well. Yeah, I, I think it because it's like, uh, it's funny, I actually wrote an article called Dear Black Girls. And um, I, I really just put emphasis on, you know, the black son or the black boy gets the talk of, you know, you have the target on your back. And when you see the police, hit, have your hands up and just be ready at all times. But that black daughter, that black girl doesn't get that talk. Either it's because they just think, okay, she's a woman and she, I don't know how she's gonna take it, she's sensitive or just because they just don't even think that she needs to have that talk. But the black girls matter. I think growing up, you always see just little things that just diminish the black girl. And then she grows up to be this woman with just trying to carve her way out of this hole. And it's so much deeper than that. And, and, and my biggest thing is you have to start at the root. You have to start at that, that, that younger generation to let them know that their voice is so powerful, that they're able to do whatever they want. Because I know that's what my parents instilled in me through and through is just to know that you don't let anyone stop you from achieving your goals. And I think that's key. And a lot of people maybe don't do that to their black daughter or their black young girl in their life because of whatever reason. But I think we just have to not just focus on the black boy or black man but also the black woman as well because you see it all the time oh when something's going good we're always like oh our black queens praise them they're here yes hear them but then the minute we say something or the minute we do something we get criticized or we get knocked down or we're just 
they might not even want to qualify is because our name has an apostrophe in it. It's those little things that are so key. And I just knew that I needed to just attack that that circle because I was once that little black girl with the apostrophe in her name, who knows what people said when they looked at my name. But now that it's on ESPN or now that I can put the ball in the hoop, oh, it's good, it's perfect. But it's for that young girl that may not have that opportunity to be that basketball player, but yet know that her voice matters and, and people like me are standing behind her. One of the things that I really appreciate amongst the many things that you've done is this notion of affirming the power that each of us has right where we are. And you said or wrote, if you remember one thing from this letter, remember this. You don't have to be a WNBA player or politician or celebrity to have an impact on someone else. And so you are using your platform not just to carry out the beliefs that you have to honor the lessons you learned from your parents, but you are also empowering other people to do that. You're a founding member of the More Than a Vote campaign to work against voter disenfranchisement. How do you see that connection between affirming community, um, you know, promoting the many opportunities for people have to explore their power, but also reminding people of the need to be engaged politically and civically? Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it all has the connection of just being just a, just a good human. I think at the end of the day, it's nothing that we're overlooking or it's nothing too big, it's nothing too small, but it's just just being a good human all around. I'm not saying the world is perfect and, and it's gonna be perfect if we act this certain way, but just, I guess I just wanna say like, put yourself in someone else's shoes, put yourself as to living with someone that has nothing and still have to supply for their family and still have to please their children and, and little things like that. And I think it's key once you, I think once we start channeling our minds in a way that's like, I like you feel sorry for someone and you just, wished in the best and you hope the best for them, but then you put yourself in their shoes and it's like, okay, now how do you feel? Do you think you'll be able to live like, a, like would a black man be able to live like a white man or vice versa? Those little things, like put yourself in someone else's shoes, view their community in a way and then help in that way. And I think the biggest thing is knowing that you don't have to be a celebrity to just make a difference. I think people kind of think, oh, they have the money to fund this and give this away and start this, but it doesn't even have to be like that. It starts at the baseline level and just connecting and just researching and connecting within your community and having those hard talks that may bring those goosebumps or raise hairs on your arms. Like those chilling, chilling stories that we hear that needs to be said and needs to be heard. I think that is key. So I think that's all the connection of just being a human. Look past the fact of just money or just what you into or how you're raised, but put yourself in someone else's shoes and, and think, okay, now would I be able to live like that? And then you'll see that people live like that every single day and they, they still, make men's, it still make things meet. Now, this has been a difficult year. We are dealing with dual pandemics of COVID-19, of you know racial violence and racial tension. And all of that can take its toll, especially for people who live outside of themselves to be aware, as you mentioned, of others who are struggling and facing challenge. And you have been very candid about the emotional toll that all of this can take on people Asia, how do we break that stigma 
around mental wellness, particularly within Black communities, where there's often this idea that you can just pray it away. Why do we need to talk about this now? Uh, I, I think because it's real. I think if we, if you haven't seen it before 2020, you see it, you've, you've felt it, you've seen it now. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, the more you see it, the more it breaks the stigma because then it'll be, it'll be normalized. Like you will see it more you'll hear it more. And like you said, it is tough in the black community where it's like, oh, nothing's wrong with you. You need to be grateful or just go pray it away. No, it's so much deeper than that. It's, it's so, it's so deep rooted that it's like, if we see it more and we hear it more, we feel it more, then it'll become normalized to a fact that it's like, okay, yes, maybe I do need to just talk it out. Maybe I do need just a little help with my mental awareness. And I, I think it just, it's better when you hear it from athletes because I think they see us as machines. I think they see us as just like, okay, yeah, you're good at what you do. You make it look easy. So nothing can be wrong with you. You have all the money, you have all these accolades, you're perfect. But in, when they really hear our stories and when they really see and put it together, I think it'll go a long way. And then they kind of have self-reflection on themselves and say, okay, how can I go about it? Cause I know for my, for me, it was tough for me to even think about that. I just had anxiety issues or depression in a way that I'm, cause I'm like, oh my God, people in the world think that I am this superwoman and I can't have feelings, but in actuality I do. But then once I started understanding that that is who I am and I can share my story in it, in it turned out that it helps me in that way then I said okay I can use this as a tool to help others so it's going to be tough to break the stigma of course but I think the more you see it uh the more you hear about it from real life stories I think that's when you start to understand it better in a way that you can then self-reflect on yourself and say okay how can I be a better person and how can I take care of myself I think that's the biggest thing that I learned I need to focus on myself a lot more uh for the betterment of me and my future and the people around me You know, one of those tough lessons is that self-care doesn't make you selfish. It actually makes you better. It makes you better as a person, but also better able to do the other things that you are so committed to. And the common thread through everything you've said to us today, Asia, is this need to affirm our common humanity. And that that common humanity can sometimes mean that we're feeling weak or not fully ourselves, But it also means that we can see in others the need to do that. And it doesn't matter if you wear a WNBA jersey or you're just sort of an everyday person to be able to do that and affirm that in others. And so that leads me then to, you know, our final question, Asia. Given all that you see, all that you've experienced, all the amazing things that you have committed yourself to, do you have hope? in terms of moving forward, that the activism and connection of women athletes and people more generally can get us to a better place in this country? Um, yes, I, I, I always have hope. I try to be optimistic in everything that I do. I, I love to bet on myself. I love to bet on the women around me, the, the people around me. And I, I do. I honestly think that it's going to take some time. Uh, it's not going to even be in the near two years, three years, but even farther than that. But my biggest thing that gives me hope is hopefully in the future, my child, uh, whether it's a son or daughter, does not have to go through the same thing that I'm going through because it rips me to shreds when we were going through all of this in the bubble and my parents are saying that I'm going through the same thing that they're going through. That means that there's there's no change. There hasn't been anything that's dip off. It's just now 
people are even more bolder. Uh, people are using their voices a lot more. So hopefully it kind of speeds the curve. But that's the thing that gives me hope is knowing that maybe the next generation, if I continue to do what I do and work hard on what I do and have these and follow these people around me and help uplift them, that hopefully the future and the next generation, my children's children doesn't have to go through what I'm going through. Uh, what what my parents or what my parents went through, and those are the little things that still give me hope till this day, and it's going to continue to give me hope that I am blessed with a platform that I can use in any type of way. And I always say when I'm talking to my to a young group is I don't care if you don't understand anything that I'm saying. At least just if I just touch one person, I feel like I can make a difference just by touching one person because who knows what they'll then go and, and encourage to do. And I think that's key is if we can just change one little thing or, or just hear, let someone hear us out for one little thing, we're going to be good. And it's just the seeds. You just got to plant the seeds and just pray for growth. Asia Wilson is the 2020 Most Valuable Player for the WNBA, and she's a member of the League's Social Justice Council. Asia, thank you and keep planting those seeds. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Asia and Amira Rose Davis. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski, and we'd love to hear from you. How has your life been disrupted this year, and what solutions would you like to see? Send your feedback to disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.